You just heard the beginning of a piece called Learn to Fly. It's the third movement of a three-movement work by composer David Lang titled These Broken Wings, and that's part of a larger work called Singing in the Dead of Night, and it's a new album by Eighth Blackbird. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, introducing you to yet another Chicago classical podcast, and our guest on this podcast is Eighth Blackbird pianist and founding member, Lisa Kaplan. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. I'm so thrilled that you're doing this with us. Me too. It's been a little while, and I really enjoy these interviews. I do as well. And of course, anytime a new album from Eighth Blackbird comes out, it's a real event. Before we get to the album itself, Lisa, can you just talk a little bit about the ensemble, your role as a founding member, and how the group has evolved over the years? Sure. We were founded at Oberlin Conservatory when the original founding members were all students there. That was about 23 years ago. (laughs) None of us really at the beginning expected that we would make a career of this and just incredibly grateful that that was able to be the case. So at the beginning, kind of just took it year to year, making different commitments to each other, year at a time, a few years at a time. It just ended up growing into something that turned into a career. So there's been a lot of evolution, I think, and especially recently when we basically had four personnel changes all at once and Matthew Duvall and I took over the creative and executive directorship of the whole organization. So it's been kind of a transformative year and this album marks the beginning of that. I should note that Matthew Duvall is the founding member who's the percussionist of the ensemble. Yes, correct. And the group on this particular album are Natalie Joachim, uh, who's the flutist. Ken Thompson is on clarinets. Matt Albert, who was actually a founding member of the group and left the group but came back for this album, is the violinist. Yes. Nick Fotinos, another founding member and cellist on the album. And then, as you mentioned, Matthew Duvall, the percussionist, and yourself as pianist. That's the lineup for this Eighth Blackbird album. The lineup has evolved, as you mentioned, over the years, although this has still got quite a core of the original ensemble in it, four out of the original six players. Yes, absolutely. And Natalie just left the group in the end of December 2019 to forge what has become a burgeoning composer-performer career for herself. So she's been doing wonderful things and receiving great accolades and still lives in Chicago, which is wonderful for us and for the community as well. And as you mentioned, Ken Thompson, who's the wonderful clarinetist for Bang on a Can, he was able to play this album with us. Our founding clarinetist, after playing with us for 22 years, decided to go into the corporate IT world, which he had sort of always worked in. That's Michael McAfee, of course. Yes. He really left in August, and we made this recording in September, so we were really happy that Ken, who had played all of the music before and collaborated with him in the past, was able to join us on the recording. And I should note that Singing in the Dead of Night is Eighth Blackbird's 10th album for Sadie, and Eighth Blackbird has actually won four Grammy Awards for their albums on Sadie Records. In fact, four consecutive albums released between 2008 and 2015 all won uh, the Grammy Award for Best Small Ensemble slash Chamber Music Performance, which is rather impressive. If Blackbird <laughs> was also Musical America's 2017 Ensemble of the Year, 
And the year before that, 2016, the ensemble received Chamber Music America's inaugural Visionary Award and the MacArthur Foundation's Award for Creative and Effective Institutions. And, of course, the group has also been met by amazing accolades through the years. My favorite, I think, is always the one from the Boston Globe that said very simply, Eighth Blackbird is so good, it's dangerous. (laughs) Yes, I like that one myself. (laughs) So moving on to the project here, what was the inspiration and how did it come about? I was thinking back to that question and I realized that the common thread for this project and the reason we commissioned it is Steve Reich, who wrote the piece Double Sextet for us in 2007. We wanted to pair this new premiere of Steve Reich's with something really fabulous on the second half of the program. So at the time, we decided that commissioning Julie, Michael, and David, who are the founding composers of Bang on a Can, and Steve was a huge mentor to all of them, we thought that commissioning the three of them would be a really apt pairing. So that's how the whole project came about. And we have known them all, but we have been the closest to David through the initial years of him mentoring us. And I went to him and said, what would you guys think about writing a really big piece for us? 45 minutes or something, you and Michael and Julia. And they were really excited about that idea. And what we ended up doing was making a real theatrical production of their music, and that was the intent from the beginning. David suggested that we work with Susan Marshall, who's a wonderful choreographer, and she directed the staged production of the piece. While you obviously can't see those things within an aural recording, I think you will hear the kind of epic quality of the music, and also you can imagine that this music is very theatrical in nature. And just so our listeners can know, can you explain who and what Bang on a Can actually is? Yes, Bang on a Can is a composer collective, and it was formed by David Lang, Michael Gordon, and Julia Wolfe, I believe when they were students at Yale. That's where they met. They were close friends then, and they've retained that now many years later. I guess I should know what anniversary this is for them, but they've been around for for longer than we have. And they're just a fantastic emblem of the new music community in particular. They wanted to focus on being able to get performances of their music. That's how the Bang on a Can All-Stars was formed. It was this band that initially formed in order to play pieces that David, Michael, and Julia were writing, and then, of course, evolved into something far greater as this kind of symbol of what it means to be a composer and to get your music played. What they did at the time was actually very forward-thinking. And sometimes they compose individually and sometimes, as in this case, in tandem, correct? Yeah, and I've heard other projects of theirs where they've done things collaboratively. They're each composing in their own voice, but because they're so close and they've been close for so long, there's just like an intuition that develops where you think, oh, well, if I do something like this, Julie will do this, and, you know, Michael's really good at doing this. And even though the pieces are true to their own aesthetic voice, I think there's something larger that's just holding them together as well. In the case of our piece, they chose to title it Singing in the Dead of Night, which is from, of course, Paul McCartney's tune, Blackbird. 
And I think other than that, that was one of the unifying themes for them to just use as a jumping off point. But none of the music sounds like Blackbird or anything. They just kind of used that as a symbol of beginning to compose the piece, I guess. I'd like to read a little bit of what David Lang says about working together in the program notes. He writes, The strange thing is that we usually operate as individual composers, writing our own very separate music, each on his or her own. What's interesting to us about these joint projects is they give us a chance to make something that's larger than our individual opinions, in which we are contributing something meaningful to something that might have a wider range than what we might do on our own. These pieces are meant from the start to have a broad scope, broad enough to include the musical opinions of three related but very independent composers. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful summary. I think you'll hear when you hear the music is very different, but there's also something that holds it all together. Maybe it's even partially generational or that they studied with similar people, that they were in school at the same time. It's just like a vibe. It makes it clear that the pieces belong together. And I should say that they were interested in making the whole a piece of theater as well because of a Blackbird's investment in that kind of production. Uh, so much we can talk about and will during this Classical Chicago podcast on CD Records, but I think it's time to get to some of the music. There are five pieces on the album, if you count David Lang's individual movements as separate pieces. So let's start with where the album starts, with the first movement of David Lang's piece, which is titled These Broken Wings, and this movement is titled These Broken Wings, Part 1. And about it in the program notes, David says, The first moment consists of music that requires incredible stamina and intense concentration. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? It's very fast. I think it's like eighth note equals 200 or something like that. And every bar is a different meter, so you must count all the time. And I can't remember the exact marking that's on the page. David said it should always sound like it's on the verge of being out of control, which is a very thin line to walk. If it sounds too controlled, then it doesn't have the excitement. But if it's actually out of control, then you don't hear the interlocking rhythm and everything. So it's hard to find that exact space where it's on the verge of being out of control. But that's what I think it sounds like. Let's hear that then. And since this is the shortest movement on the disc, we will hear this one in its entirety. This is again by David Lang, These Broken Wings, Part 1, performed by Eighth Blackbird from their new Sadie album, Singing in the Dead of Night.
You just heard These Broken Wings, Part 1, by David Lang, a composer who's part of the Bang on a Can Collective. It's part of the new album by Eighth Blackbird, Singing in the Dead of Night. It's the June 2020 release on Sadie Records. And Lisa, right before we played that track, you were commenting about how it's supposed to sound like it's on the verge of going out of control, but obviously can't really go out of control because then you lose all the musical value. While we were listening, you had some additional reflections, and of course it occurs to me as a producer that that must be quite a challenge for the album producer as well. Yeah, because there's a feeling of comfort, but you need it to sound urgent. So I think you can only, at least I can only arrive at that kind of point when I know a piece like the back of my hand. And then it's much easier to change the emotional tone of what it is. So I think what he writes at the beginning is slightly maniacal, something like that. (laughs) But, you know, what's funny is when we were going through and doing the edits of this movement, Elaine Martone, our wonderful producer, she kept saying, I love Lang One. It's so bright and crazy and kind of happy, but very sunny. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Like, it may end up sounding like that. But my feeling of my own personal performance of playing it is that it's aggressive, my heart rate is kind of high. (laughs) So I thought it was funny that her response was that in a way it just sounded sunny and beautiful. And I think probably to uh, a lot of listeners, that's something that will really come across. It's a piece that we've played a lot. And I do have a funny anecdote about it is that The original idea with all three of their pieces was that we were supposed to be able to memorize the entire program. And I think maybe we received David's piece first. And I remember just looking at that first movement and thinking, there's no way we can memorize this. (laughs) And I called David and I said, is there some trick or is there something that you can help in terms of the different irregular meters like is there a pattern because I've been looking for one and I can't find it and he said oh yeah I don't know there was probably a pattern but after I wrote it I forgot what it was and we're not going to figure that out now (laughs) so he said we'll just figure out what the staging where you use music for that one if you have to and we did memorize a lot of the music Michael Gordon's piece was fully memorized and the other movements of David's piece and parts of Julia's piece as well and I think it worked as a whole in terms of the staging yeah I just remember looking at that first movement of David's piece and thinking oh my gosh, how did he write us this and we're supposed to memorize this? That will never happen. That raises an interesting thing because one of Eighth Blackbird's trademarks as an ensemble is the movement. And in here you even have a choreographer, Susan Marshall, who's doing that. But it sounds like you did have to come back every now and then to, shall we say, home base when you had to read, right? Yes. And we've since done other stage projects where it's been the same way. Memorization in chamber music is just particularly wonderful. It means that you can really live and breathe the music with like no barrier at all. And it's been a value that Eighth Blackbird has held high because of the level of performance you can achieve. But that being said, it's a huge time commitment. Depending on the production schedule or when music actually is turned in, despite when deadlines are, you can't always achieve the ideal goal. So the way we achieved it for Singing the Dead of Night certainly put forward something that would be considered totally theatrical from an audience standpoint, even if we didn't memorize 100% of the notes. Can you describe a little bit the actual choreography of the show? How did the movement work? 
Michael Gordon's pieces when we first started moving around, because the order of the pieces was David's first movement kind of served as this prelude. And then we got ready for this major jam session that is at the heart of Michael Gordon's piece. And in Michael Gordon's piece, when he went to go write it, he asked us all what kind of doublings we were comfortable with that maybe weren't traditional. Not just, oh, violin can play viola or piano can play keyboard, but things that may be slightly different. And so there's a lot of people playing different instruments in that piece, which therefore made for a lot of great choreography in terms of getting to those instruments, picking them up, playing them. Matthew and I both play accordion in the piece. Lots of various people play piano and there's harmonicas. And so it's really fun in that way where it does feel like you're jamming with your friends, even though what you're playing is actually really, really, really difficult music that's supposed to sound easy. <laughs> so it sort of is a way to start the whole show. There was this whole jam session. And then it really evolved beautifully over the course of the whole production. You'll hear in the second movement of David's piece, these crashes that disrupt this beautiful pasakaya that happens and get more and more dense throughout the piece. And those crashes are us dropping metals. The way that worked theatrically was actually, I believe it ended up being Michael, our clarinetist. We would load him up with these different pots and pans. And Wait, I thought Cam was clarinets on this. Yes, but in the production, Michael oh, did the production. Yeah, before I mean, the recording. Right, yeah. So we would load up Michael with all of these pots and pans, and that just happened while the Pasakaya music was playing. And then he would begin to lose grip and he would start dropping them. And there's this sad clown imagery in a way. It was very beautiful, but also very sad. And then I think in Julia's piece, it really reached its peak in terms of what the movement signified. There was a whole table at the front of the stage, downstage of all of us performing, and different people would come to that table to do various movement. And her original thought was to have sand on the table, which was very messy, but you can imagine what the sound was like. And we replaced the sand with actually quinoa because it sounded really great and it would fall kind of right off of you. So it really progressed over the course of this 45-minute production into something that I think you would never have guessed you would get to by the end. It was very beautiful. We're going to bring that production back next season for our 25th anniversary, actually. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the piece that David Lang three movements are interspersed into the program. So yes, track two is not second moment of David Lang. It is the Michael Gordon piece titled The Light of the Dark. And Michael writes about the use of these different instruments in his program note. He writes, The Light of the Dark was written specifically for Eighth Blackbird. In my initial conversations with the musicians, they mentioned the other instruments that they play, accordion, guitar, percussion, and I imagined a chaos on stage with the musicians grabbing the nearest available instrument and playing on it. The piece starts with a heavy metal-esque cello line and builds from there into a kind of out-of-control late-night jam session, complete with unpredictable metallic crashes, swirling virtuosic fiddling, and colliding glissandos. And I think you've already described some of that very nicely. Yeah, I will just add that I've always really loved Michael's music. I think he's a master of taking different layers of counterpoint that stand on their own as beautiful melodies, and he layers them on top of each other. And you think, how could this ever work? But somehow it does. And I just think 
the kind of density that he creates with complex counterpoint and shape of the lines is just really beautiful. And I also think he has a real sense of humor in the music, which I think you'll hear as well. Excellent. And I should note that in the booklet, you get to see the performers not only by their traditional instruments, but it actually lists all the different instruments everybody plays as they go through this recording, especially on Gordon's piece. I want to note one other thing about the Gordon, which is it's kind of broken up. To my way of thinking, it's got five relatively short sections with fairly big breaks in between. Was that to allow people to move around or was that just uh, the way he wanted to compose it? I've never officially asked him the question. The way I see it is there were definitely some pauses he composed into the piece to allow for movement. And then I think he decided that it would be cool to then just sometimes write awkward pauses because there was these other pauses that happened for movement's sake. And so it becomes a part of the piece. And I remember feeling it when you perform it in front of an audience really interesting because people don't know what to do there. When nobody's moving and there's just silence for a while, they just aren't always sure what's happening. And we really tried to embrace that part of the piece. Let's hear the first part of Michael Gordon's The Light of the Dark. Once again, Eighth Blackbird.
That was the beginning of a piece titled The Light of the Dark by Michael Gordon, part of a larger piece called Singing in the Dead of Night by all three composers who make up the Bang on a Can Composers Collective, as performed by 8th Blackbird on its latest album for Sadie Records. It's 10th, in fact. And if you're liking what you're hearing, I hope you'll check it out at sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records dot O-R-G. Or wherever you like to get your music, whether it's physically from Amazon.com or Archive Music or... If you like to download from iTunes or Apple Music or stream it on Spotify or on one of the many high-definition streaming sites, you will find this in all those places when it is released in June 2020. Moving on now, I'm talking, by the way, with Lisa Kaplan, the pianist and founding member of Eighth Blackbird. And as we noted earlier, the piece by David Lang is in three movements that are interspersed in the program. So track three on this five-track album is actually the second movement of David Lang's piece. Let me read to you what he says about it. He writes, Sad falling gestures dominate the slow second movement, and I gave the vague but hopefully inspiring instruction that the players should drop things when they are not playing. And the piece is characterized by falling figures as well as falling objects. And you mentioned in the live performances that Michael McAfee, who was the clarinetist for the group almost up till when this album was made, and then for this album you went with the clarinetist of the actual Bang on a Can All-Stars, the group that performs the Bang Collective works most often. Did it fall to Ken to drop things, or did that get done more evenly in the session? I should say in the live performance, while we loaded up Michael with all of the objects, people did just drop things. So actually... Ken did not take part in that because we did a lot of the recording of the metal objects on the very first day, and he didn't arrive until later that afternoon. So everybody else dropped medals, which we had a lot of fun doing. (laughs) And then we layered them over on top of the recording later on. So that's a technique called overdubbing. And since you mentioned that, it might be a good time to talk about the recording team again. The producer was Elaine Martone. The engineer was Sadie Records' founding engineer, Bill Malone, who I've worked with on well over 100 albums. And then there was a mastering engineer. So you had a recording engineer at the session. And then after everything was put together to everybody's satisfaction, we handed it off to Michael Bishop as the mastering engineer. And he was the recording engineer on 8th Blackbird's Hand Eye album a few years back. And he did some really amazing things with the music. How would you describe the role of the mastering engineer here? the mastering engineer has a really interesting job. We often really like to pick somebody who's had no involvement with the project up until they master, but has knowledge of the work we do, our output recording-wise. And they really try to match up the volumes for the tracks, but keep the dynamic contrast and They listen with a different objectivity than everyone who's been working on the album up until that point has contributed. So it's kind of a cool process to see what the mastering engineer does at the very end. It's exciting. I always feel like it's like putting the icing on the cake or something like that. (laughs) And I had the chance to listen to the album both pre- and post-mastering, and I have to say Michael did a really excellent job, which complemented the work of Elaine and Bill at the sessions themselves. Initially, a lot of mixing challenges for Bill with all the overdubs to get that all to fit in. Can you talk a little bit about Elaine's role in coordinating all this? Elaine is just such a fantastic producer because she is really 
intuitive in terms of reading everybody's moods. So she keeps the vibe just really good, good energy. I also think she knows when to move on. So she just has a really lovely presence in terms of running the sessions. She loves Bill. They work together on one of our other albums and we first met Elaine about 10 years ago when she recorded us with the Lana Symphony Concerto that Jennifer Higdon wrote for us called On a Wire. And just loved and connected with her from that time. It's been a pleasure to include her as part of the recording team. Well, let's get back to the music. We've already talked about the sad, maybe introspective nature of this second movement and with the falling objects to complement the falling figures. Now, the full title is These Broken Wings Part 2, Perens Pasakai, which is, of course, the French spelling of Pasakalia, the originally Baroque variations form. How does the piece's nature as a Pasakalia or Pasakai, how is that felt in the performance and for the listener? For me, Pasakaya or Pasakai, I always think of some kind of repeated ground bass figure happening. And you don't get that exactly in this piece, but about midway through, you will hear the low end of the piano, the cello, the bass clarinet, viola, all just playing in unison what is essentially a kind of ground bass. It always starts, raises on a top G, and it descends, as we talked about, and then goes back up to a G, but it doesn't always have the exact same framework, not like the way a strict Baroque Pasakaya would. And it doesn't start with it either, which I think is a really cool aspect of the whole piece. The entire piece is really just made up of two components, this ground bass that I just spoke about, and then the opening material of the piece which is just flute, glockenspiel, and vibraphone also playing in unison. This floating, eerie, beautiful melody that has a real sadness to it. And then they finish playing, the Pasakaya ground bass part enters, and then the flute, vibraphone, glockenspiel re-enter, and it just combines with the ground bass movement. So he just took these two big ideas and combined them And then the piece ends with a brief coda just without any of the ground bass. But I've always thought of it, probably because of the subtitle of the Pasakai, that it's like a modern-day lament similar to Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, something like that. It really just reminds me of that kind of lamenting, but done David Lang's way. That's what I hear when I hear it, and it's very beautiful to listen to, but there's also a simplicity to it that is quite hard to achieve. For that reason, this movement is very emotional for me in a way that the others are more, not less pathos, but less overt emotion. We heard the beginning of Michael Gordon's piece, so we're actually going to pick up this movement from David Lang. We'll hear sort of the back half of it now. And again, this is titled These Broken Wings, Part 2, Pasakai, and it's performed by Eighth Blackbird.
You just heard the second part or second half of a piece called These Broken Wings Part 2 because it's the second movement of a larger piece called These Broken Wings and it's called in parentheses a pasakai or pasakalia because it imitates to a certain extent that Baroque form as we discussed before we heard it and it was performed by 8th Blackbird on their new album Singing in the Dead of Night And we're going to move now on to the title track. You had noted earlier that title, of course, comes from the lyrics by Paul McCartney to the Beatles song Blackbird. But in fact, all the piece titles come from the lyrics to that Beatles song. Are there any other common threads that run through the program? Like I was talking about before, I think they have a commonality in just that it's like these three friends who've known each other for a really long time who have gone to school together, who have started this collective that has evolved into a real symbol of the whole new music community. And something that drives all of their pieces is rhythm, for sure. And it's something that's important to each of them in different ways, especially in Julia's piece, which feels, to me, really epic. Basically, there's always movement of some kind. Within that, I think she creates a lot of different characters and moods It's like a real journey going through her piece. But there's this ceaseless quality to the journey where there's this undulating rhythm that's almost always present. And I guess the thing that binds them all together is this really rich engagement with rhythm. In the album, Julia contributes a short note about her piece, which I'll read now. The title, Singing in the Dead of Night, conjures up the still and surreal nighttime experience of being the only one awake. Out of the silence often comes inspiration, finding one's way to a human song, a symphony of sound. Singing in the dead of night is its own metaphor, beginning always starting in the dead of night, in the void into which a creation is made. The virtuosity and intensity of the music are inspired by the high-voltage performers of Eighth Blackbird. The silences, sandpaper sounds and density, are there for the thoughtful and exquisite Susan Marshall, and of course Susan is the choreographer. Is it true that this whole project, one of the inspirations, was Julia's own personal battles with insomnia? Oh, that's funny. I actually never have talked to her about that, but it could very well be. That's an interesting idea because what I was just saying about how even when there's stillness in her piece, there's always motion, which it's like the strings and winds are just holding a note for like three minutes that seems to hardly really change. But underneath that... There's these sounds of sandpaper. For me, when I can't sleep, it's because my brain is very active and I just can't shut it down. So even though everything is still around you, there's this constant activity. Yeah, what you just said is probably very accurate in describing anyone's insomnia, I guess. When we heard Michael Gordon's piece, that involved players picking up different instruments. Here, it's creating sounds that are not from traditional instruments at all, correct? Right. You'll hear us all playing sandpaper sounds, and some of it we put the sandpaper on a table and just rub together two sandpaper blocks. You know, I guess except for percussionists, nobody's used to playing <laughs> those instruments, I suppose. Right. And you mentioned how it was accomplished, some of this stuff in the session using quinoa. Is it done differently in recording session than you do in the live performance? Yeah, it's done differently in the recording. We didn't use the quinoa at all. The use of the quinoa was important for the theatrical version because, like, at the end of the piece, I had to climb up onto this table and slide my entire body across it. 
on top of the quinoa, and then I had to get off and go back and play the piano. And so you could see if I did it with sand, it would stick everywhere and get into the piano on the <laughs> when I had to go play it. But the quinoa just sits like little tiny balls. It rolls right off of you, and it was not a hazard <laughs> for going back to play my actual instrument. In the recording, we didn't use the quinoa at all. We just used the sandpaper because that sounded just great. Excellent. As you mentioned, this is an epic work. It is by far the largest work on the disc and the largest single movement as well. So we'll hear one section of it, a particularly energetic one. So I hope people enjoy this. This is from the title track on the album, Singing in the Dead of Night. And this particular piece is by composer Julia Wolf, as performed once again by Eighth Blackbird. Singing in the Dead of Night. That was a section of a piece by that title by Julia Wolf from an album of that title by Eighth Blackbird. It's the new release for June 2020 on Sadie Records. And if you've been enjoying hearing these excerpts on our Classical Chicago podcast, I hope you'll check out the album. You can go to sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or wherever music is sold or streamed in whatever format you enjoy it. We'll be out there on all the various sites, including our own, so I hope you'll want to check it out. I'm talking with Lisa Kaplan, the founding pianist of 
Eighth Blackbird, about this wonderful album. And I should note that these are all world premiere recordings, these pieces. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of performing new works and recording them for posterity? So much of what we play is new music, and by new I mean written six months ago. <laughs> but recording it is, and having that as an archive is really important. So putting out these world premiere recordings, which is a huge part of what City Records does, it's just really important. We're so glad to be able to contribute to that. We want all of these pieces to be played by other people. In this case, these pieces were written actually a number of years ago, and we never got around to recording them for various reasons. So it was a joy to come back to the music and to finally record these pieces. I think it might be my favorite album that we've recorded for Sadie. Sometimes I feel that way about every album as they come out, so <laughs> I suppose that's a good thing. <laughs> and how is it collaborating with living composers and bringing their works to life for the first time, and how does that change what the quote-unquote normal creative process it's amazing just to be able to work with living, breathing composers because it can be a collaborative process where it obviously can't be that if you're working with a composer who's no longer living. And the kind of relationships that we've forged with all the various composers are, for me, one of the best parts about this whole job. But David, Michael, and Julia are just really wonderful, wonderful people. And to know them and and to have had them write for us is a real privilege, but not just them, anybody. And I think that the kind of community that is created just by having those kinds of collaborations is so important. And it's especially important in this time now where we're all living inside a pandemic Mm. to be able to have community at a time where you can't actually be in the same physical space with people is really necessary, I think, to everybody getting through this. Agreed. So as we noted before, David Lang's piece, Being in Three Movements, actually frames the program. And here's what he says about the final movement. He says, in the last movement, I wanted to make music that danced and pushed forward in the hope that it would encourage the musicians to do so as well. This is again for the larger piece called These Broken Wings. This is These Broken Wings Part 3 with the subtitle Learn to Fly. And I've always thought of this as one of Eighth Blackbird's signature pieces, at least since (laughs) it was written. Is that fair? Yeah, I feel it's one of our signature pieces too. And does it, in fact, push forward in a way that encourages you to do so as well? Yeah. It's interesting, too. Learn to Fly, that title actually came later. He hadn't originally subtitled this movement, but he only did so later because we started playing it so often as a standalone movement. And again, in a way that David is just such a master of, he manipulates rhythm in a way that is regularly irregular. And it's just so much fun to play. It's a wonderful kind of jam session. There's this intense and awesome violin solo in the middle of it, and it was very memorizable. So it really catered to our strengths as an ensemble in the way that it was such a groove-based jam. It's also a piece I could probably play in my sleep now. (laughs) So it's great to feel like you have a piece like that. And the dancing he mentions, is that something that's reflected in the live performance? 
No, there's no actual dancing. What does the movement in the live performance entail? I think it was not very complicated. It just amplified what happens in the music. So we highlight the small subgroups that end up playing times together, but generally there was not a lot. It was kind of just a stand-up-and-play piece and in the way that his first movement worked as well. So the bookends of the whole piece set these tableaus for the whole production. So the dancing is really in the music itself. Yes, I would uh, say, yeah. Before I play the excerpt, I should have asked about the overall title of the work, These Broken Wings. Is there any special meaning to that? No, I think that just appealed to him as a lyric from Blackbird as well. I've never thought about it too much, but I've always liked it. Obviously, with Julia Wolf, there was clearly meaning in the line yes, she chose. And what about Michael Gordon, The Light of the Dark? Any special meaning there? I've never talked to him about it. My own feeling of it is that there's a lot of lightness in terms of the melodies that he's writing, but the way in which he sets them all in terms of the context of the whole piece and how much counterpoint ends up coming together, especially by the end, feels like it's within a darker landscape. So there's this lightness, but it's not all light, if that makes sense. Well, I would say the last moment, Learn to Fly, pretty much is all light in yeah. terms of being really, as you say, in a groove. I think has everybody dancing, at least in their seats. So here is the ending, the last section of the last piece on the album, These Broken Wings, Part 3, Learn to Fly, jammed, as it were, by Eighth <laughs> Blackbird. That groove you just heard was by David Lang. It's from a piece called These Broken Wings. It's part three, the third and last moment, subtitled Learn to Fly, and it's part of a larger work, a collective work, by all three composers who make up Bang on a Can. The overall piece is titled Singing in the Dead of Night, which is also the title of the individual movement by Julia Wolfe. The piece also includes music by Michael Gordon, as well as David Lang and Julia. And it's all collectively the new album by Eighth Blackbird on Sadie Records, Singing in the Dead of Night. 
I'm talking with Lisa Kaplan, the founding pianist of 8th Blackbird. And Lisa, what's coming up for 8th Blackbird? And I should ask, how has this COVID-19 epidemic affected all of your lives and your plans? And how are you adjusting? Well, like everyone, all of our performances have been either canceled or postponed, at least through the summertime. I'm skeptical that anything will continue as planned until maybe January, but Mm. our fall engagements are still in place. And we're really excited about some of the things that we'll be doing next year. We have this great new concerto for Eighth Blackbird, for sextet and wind band, basically. And it's a piece by Viet Quang, who's a fantastic composer, was one of our Blackbird Creative Lab fellow composers. And he wrote this piece, Hammerspace, that will premiere with the U.S. Navy Band in December, if that happens. Pretty excited about that work. And another concerto being written for us that Cincinnati Symphony is commissioning of the Collective Kinds of Kings. And Gemma Peacock, who's the founder of that collective, she also one of our creative alumni. And you want to explain for a moment what 8th Blackbird Creative Lab is? Yeah, Creative Lab was our summer education program for emerging composers and performers. And we started it in 2017, held it in 2017 and 18, and actually hope to continue it next summer here in Chicago, 2021. We'll see if that happens as well. But it's essentially a tuition-free program steeped in not just performing, but entrepreneurship, strategic vision, and curating. It's just really special mentorship program and a fostering of community of all of these fantastic musicians, composers, performers that are part of our new music community. Finally, on these podcasts, we always like to ask the question for you, what makes the Chicago music scene, and maybe in your case, I should be asking specifically the new music scene, special? I feel Chicago's music scene is incredibly collaborative, very community-oriented. I think there's not a sense of any kind of cutthroat behavior, (laughs) just in terms of vying for gigs or concerts or things like that. I feel people really embrace the community aspect of it. And for me, that's incredibly important. And it's one of the reasons I've lived here for so long and have loved doing so. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been great. Again, the album is Singing in the Dead of Night. I hope you'll want to check it out after hearing all this. This has been another classical Chicago podcast on CD Records. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of CD. Thank you so much for listening.